evening, everyone. If we haven't met, my name's Chris. I'm one of the leadership team here at The Gathering, and it's good to have you with us. We are working through, looking at the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And uh, as Kat mentioned, we've got a card to help us read it all the way through. And you might have got to the part of Revelation where you thought, what on earth was that I just read? I had a similar experience the other night. I was, there was nobody else in the house, and... Um, I had nothing on, so I sat down and flicked through Netflix, and there was a movie I hadn't seen. It was one of those funny heist movies. Uh, you know the kind of thing? There's a, there's a bunch of likable criminals who come up with a plan, in this case, to, to rob a casino of some money and some jewels. And you know how it's going to play out. They'd never seen the movie before. They, they come up with a complex plan, which all, then, all seems to work, and then it goes horribly wrong, and then there's a wonderful double whammy of a conclusion, and you, there's been a double cross at the end, and you realize there have been clues, all, you know the kind of thing, all the way through. And you, the last 15 to 10 minutes of the film are really, really fast, and you, you, you look at the end of the film and you think, well, what did I just see there? What just happened there? And maybe you've had that feeling with Revelation. What have I just looked at? That was weird. Or maybe you've more seriously been looking at the news and you would watch a story of oh, gun, a gunman shooting children in a school in the States. And you wonder what God has to say about a thing like that. And you open up your book of Revelation and you look at it and you think, you know, I'm not really sure. And so you close it again. It's a real shame if we do that. It's a real shame if we leave Revelation either massively confused or dismissing it. Let me give you a more serious parallel. Um, we could probably have an enjoyable icebreaker going around the tables and saying, uh, what did you decide to do during lockdown? How did you spend lockdown? Somebody would say, well, I, I learned how to bake bread or whatever it happens to be. One of the things I did during lockdown, you mustn't laugh about this, but I decided to find out more about the history of China, about which I knew nothing. But it dawned on me that the presence and the rise and arguably the dominance of China is going to be around for the rest of my lifetime and probably the lifetime of everybody in the room this evening. So I jolly well ought to get my head around it a little bit. And I read various books. And one of the books I read was a book of philosophy or politics by a guy called Confucius. It's one of the sort of the entry-level books that everybody recommends on China, Confucius. And I had, a, I had this weird feeling that apparently lots of people have when reading Confucius. It's written out like a series of little parables or stories or paragraphs. Sometimes you read it and you think, well, that's blindingly obvious. Why would you think that was worth putting in a book? And other times you read a paragraph and you think, I have not got the foggiest idea what was going on there. I simply don't understand it. Now, when those things happen, and you're reading about a culture about which you know, and know nothing at all, but know it's been around and will be around, you know what the respectful thing to do is, which is you park your skepticism. And you say, okay, if this has been read and mulled over and valued, for 3,000 years, there must be treasure here that I cannot see on the surface. So whether it strikes me as being a light little story, 
there must be hidden depth. Or whether it strikes me as being absolutely impossible to fathom, there must be truth there. It's worth giving our time to it. Well, friends, especially if we call ourselves Christians, that is true in spades for the book of Revelation. This is a book that's been valued for 2,000 years. Some parts of the Bible are really easy to read. If you read some of Jesus' parables, you read them and you think, yep, got that, move on. That's a foolish thing to do. His simple stories contain hidden treasures. But sometimes, as with Revelation, we've got something which is complex and rich and confusing and dark. And the wise thing to do is not to look for something sort of instant and easy, but to say there's treasure here. There's treasure here which Christians through thousands of years of hard-won Christian discipleship have found in here. And I will give ourselves to it. And I say all that because the part we're going to look at in Revelation tonight, and Dave's given me three chapters, four chapters actually, most of chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11, um, contains some extraordinarily difficult things. Now, some of them, um, honestly, leave me really quite puzzled. Um, we've got some discussion questions coming down. I was joking with the team earlier that my two discussion questions are, uh, number one, what on earth does this passage mean? And number two, what does the bit of revelation that Chris didn't talk about actually mean? But we'll get that. We will get that. The section we're going to look at is uh, most of chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. And it's framed by a sequence of seven trumpets. If you open up Revelation, um, page 1239, page 1239 in the Church Bibles, almost at the very back, you will see that it begins with, uh, above verse 6, the heading, The Trumpets. And in fact, that's been announced a few sentences before. Verse 2, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So the seven angels, verse 6, who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. And that's what happens in this sequence. The seven trumpets are blown in turn. Trumpets announce something. They get attention. They get our focus. They have a, they have a message. Now, if you were here for the last uh, stuff or a series on uh, talk on Revelation, you will know that we encountered seven seals, seven like, like wax seals on a scroll. And you know that as those were broken open, what we discovered was the treasure was about how Christians are to live in the world when their hearts and their minds are in heaven. What's the view of heaven of Christians living in the world? The trumpets have a different message. The trumpets are dealing with this. What is God's message to the world when it's under heaven's rule? Now, you will find as we read bits of it, and we will read bits of it in a section, um, all sorts of ideas will come to you. Maybe your head's spinning already. If we had seven seals last time and we've got seven trumpets this time, are they a sequence of 14 different things? Do they run after each other? Or do they actually talking about the same thing from a different angle? I think that's more likely. That's what most commentators seem to say. That these are seeing the same events from a slightly different angle. You know when um, 
You, you know when you've got a problem with your printer and you've run out of ink? You discover that it prints in sequence. It will do magenta and it will do yellow and it will do that funny blue color and it'll do black. It does them in order, it does them in sequence. Same thing, different colors running through to present the final picture. That's what Revelation does. It sends the same information through, but does it different ways, different colors to present its final picture. So this sequence is looking at the world under heaven's rule. We've got seven of them, and we've learned from Revelation about the importance of number in the way that John writes. Do they match up, these seven trumpets and the seven seals? Well, I'll give you a spoiler alert, not that easily. So we've got seven trumpets. We've also got three woes. Chapter 8, verse 13. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out with a loud voice, Woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. And there are three announcements of woe or doom or terror. If you look at verse 12 of chapter 9, the first woe is past, two other woes are yet to come. Or chapter 11, verse 14, the second woe has passed, the third woe is coming soon. Now, when you hear the word woe, don't think of somebody going, woo, that kind of woe, it's not that kind of woe. It is an announcement of, of doom, of something going horribly wrong, of a, of a ghastly, awful, terrible thing happening. That's what woe means. So we've got seven trumpets, we've got three woes, and then there's a whole sequence of stuff that happens in thirds. Now let's get some re Bible reading going. Turn to me, with me to chapter 8, verse 7, and we'll hear some trumpets, and you'll hear the idea of thirds as well. Verse 7 of chapter 8. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the trees was burned up, and a third of the tree sorry, a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. That means something which is bitter. You see the footnote. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. A fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. See how it goes? Well, that's a whole sequence of trumpets, and you can hear the repetition of the idea of thirds. We'll come back to that in just a second. So what do all these numbers mean? sevens and threes and thirds. What is really unlikely, I think, is that it's some kind of a code, a secret message, a Bletchley Park kind of idea. 
uh, where there's names or events going on and you're supposed to unravel secretly. You know, throughout history, Christians have tried to do this. Around about the year 1000, there was a whole bunch of Christians who tried to say, ha-ha, it's a secret code about the year 1000. Time of the Reformation, Martin Luther, John Calvin, lots of Christians poured over the book of Revelation to try to decode it. There was a big, catastrophic earthquake in Lisbon in 1755. Shook a lot of Christians' faith. And people were saying, Ooh, maybe the word Lisbon is somehow hidden in a code here. Napoleon, people thought Napoleon was somehow written into the book of Revelation. They tried to decode his name. I grew up during the Cold War between Russia and America. People were trying to decode the events there with great unsuccessful. People are always trying to map the events of the present onto the book of Revelation and trying to decode it. And today, people try to map the ecological crisis we're facing uh, or, or COVID onto it. I just want to encourage us to be cautious about bending the evidence to something we want to hear. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 12. We just read it. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Now, the thing I want to notice is this. The sun and the moon and the stars have not been affected by our mistreatment of the earth. The sun and the moon and the stars lie outside human pollution. We have not ruined any of them like we have ruined our planet Earth. So what is going on here in Revelation is way bigger even than the ecological catastrophe that we face. These final events will happen. We don't know when, we don't know how. And when they do, they won't be a puzzle. They won't have to be a decoding. So this is not something to be decoded, but it is really carefully written, isn't it? The number seven, we've, we've been learning this from Revelation. The number seven, when it happens, always means something which is complete, a sequence which is over. It normally ends in something glorious, it does here. It's complete and it's final. Something which is a third can mean something which is awful and devastating, but it's only partial, not the complete thing. So a third of the trees die, a third of the, of the seas. It's awful, it's devastating, but it's incomplete. And when you come across a number three, quite often it's a sequence and the emphasis lies on the third. We do that, don't we? Three men walk into a pub. You know the joke's going to come on the third one. Well, so it is in Revelation. It's not, it's not a joke, but it follows the rule of three in terms of things happening and the stress. So it's not a code, it's carefully constructed, it is complicated. I reckon anybody who says to you that they have cracked Revelation, uh, it's very unlikely. I will they say that the best guide to Revelation is actually the Old Testament. You're already holding it in your hands. All sorts of things that happen there are meant to be echoes. So, I've been putting it off. Let's have a think about our seven trumpets and what goes on. We read the first four, didn't we, just now? Verses 6 to 12. They happen bang, bang, bang in sequence. And in summary, I suppose we'd say this. God's anger is being poured out 
through creation and its destruction. These are, these are not natural causes here. These are his angels, his trumpets, announcing something that God is doing. So, don't get me wrong. I don't think the book of Revelation is, is writing about our ecological crisis, but it's very, very close. And there is certainly a pattern. And if anyone said to me, Chris, is what's going on with our planet a warning from God? I would say quite probably it is. I'm not sure it's the end, but quite probably, quite possibly it is. Anyway, as, as John says, it is going to be partial. It's a third. It's a little bit on the way. Somewhere, somehow, it's got a similarity to it. So that's the first four trumpets. Some kind of ecological disaster which is not the end, but it's awful. The fifth trumpet changes. That's in chapter 9. The fifth angel, chapter 9, verse 1. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet. And then we get a quite different kind of sequence. Instead of looking at the earth and the plants and the seas, we get a view from heaven, and a, a star falls from heaven to earth. And that fallen star unlocks what I suppose we might call hell, the underworld, something like that, out of which come forces that are like something out of Lord of the Rings, only worse. Um, armed scorpion horses who destroy, not the earth, they destroy people, the people who have not bowed the knee to God. It's a... Um, it's a hard scene to read. It's long, and it's difficult, and it's about God's judgment. Well, look with me at chapter 9, verse 4. They, that is these scorpions from hell, as it were, chapter 9, verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, the objects of their attack are rebellious human beings. Rebellious human beings are the objects of God's anger. That's the fifth trumpet. We're going to leave the sixth one for the moment. We'll come back to it. Look with me at the seventh trumpet, which is the final one and the climax. That's in chapter 11. And we're going to start at verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumbling 
peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is, not in a warehouse somewhere in America at the end of a Harrison Hall Ford movie. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is, up in God's temple in heaven. But that's the seventh trumpet. Remember I said that when you get a sequence of seven, the last one is final, it's the climax, and it is quite often good news. Well, here it is, true, here. God's will, God's final message is that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns forever. The final trumpet says this is judgment day, it is the end. There'll be salvation and there will be wrath and destruction. The Lord Jesus Christ will reign. And we will all be there facing one of those two destinies. That is what the seventh trumpet announced. He doesn't give us many more details at this stage. There's much more to come at the end of the book of Revelation. We find out what those two destinations look like of, of heaven on earth and eternal destruction. We find out about how to get your name in the book of life. But we'll all be there. So as you think about those six trumpets, one, two, three, four, five, seven, here are two truths to take on board. God's wrath against our rebellion erupts in judgment. It erupts throughout history and it will erupt finally on judgment day. And if that's a problem for you, you need to realize, Christian friend, there is a clear biblical truth from beginning to end. There is no escape from that idea. There will be a judgment day. And on some level, we actually all want that. On some level, we do. We want there to be right in our world. And, that, and for the gunmen who shoot children, and for the racist aggressors, and for those who invade innocent countries, and those who trample on the Uyghur Muslims, we want right to be right. We want God to step in and solve it. But at the same time, we pull back because we realize, if we're honest, that our own hearts are conflicted. Within our own hearts, we find the same tendencies, the same pushes, the same urges that, taken to extremes, lead to those kinds of things. And we long for God to pause so we can find an alternative with him, we hope, as believers. But God's heart is not conflicted. God's heart is not pulled in two directions where he wants to pull back on his wrath because he thinks that it tramples on him as well. When the Bible talks about God's wrath, God's anger, it is perfect and it is guiltless, it is flawless, and it won't make mistakes. God's wrath against human sin erupts in judgment. And here's the second truth from those six trumpets. God, human sin against God erupts in a refusal to stop. 
Look with me at chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. And in some way, if you, if you take nothing else home from this part of Revelation, have a look at verse, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Why is that the key? Why do I say that's the key to these seven trumpets at this stage? Because on the one hand, the door out from God's judgment is always open. Why have we not yet had the final judgment? Because there is time to turn to God. Because the door is open. It is repentance is the word here, isn't it? It comes up. God is saying, come back, come back for forgiveness and restoration. And all the awful things that happen, happen to take him seriously, and that we turn to him. And yet, and yet, people refuse to do so. And says John, they continue with their violence and their greed and their theft and, and, their, and everything else. See, what do you make of COVID and its impact upon us? You might have thought, you might still think it is one of the marks of the end of the world. As I say, there's a huge amount of ambiguity in my mind on all these sorts of things. But undoubtedly, there's a pattern. Even if Jesus doesn't return for 5,000, 50,000 years, it rhymes. What's happened with COVID rhymes with what will happen at the end. And yet, having come through all that... Is our society marked by a seriousness before God and saying we need to change, we need to turn, we need to take God seriously? Or are we just logging for life to get back as normal as possible, as quickly as possible? Do I think a global recession, another global recession is the end of the world? No, but there's a pattern there and it rhymes. And we just want life to get back as quickly as possible and to carry on like... Revelation 9, 2021 says. Do I think our ecological crisis is a mark of the end of the world? Personally, I don't know, but it rhymes. It rhymes. And we show no desire to take God seriously at all. Again, don't get me wrong, these things could be. I, they could be, but even if they're not, they're still an echo of the trumpets. Will we repent? Or will we just carry on? And we've talked about trumpets, reminded me that I skipped over one. The, la, the, the number six trumpet, which is, uh, comes halfway through chapter 9, all of chapter 10, and a fair slab of chapter 11. Let me tell you roughly what happens, so we can get a feel for it. Uh, the angel announces, and a glorious angel appears as the trumpet sounds. And this glorious angel who obviously looks down on human nations and human kingdoms as trivial little ants, this glorious angel from God. And this glorious angel plants his feet on the earth and gives John, who's writing the book, a message. And he says, eat this, eat this. 
It will taste sweet to you, but it will turn bitter in your stomach, just as the same thing had happened to an Old Testament prophet. He has a message. And then the scene shifts, and we find this angel, uh, another angel, measuring the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem seems to stand for God's people being kept safe. At least the holy temple bit of it is. But the outside part of Jerusalem is where, is where Jesus was killed. It's a place of danger for God's people. And there we find two witnesses, two speakers for God. And they're killed for bearing witness to God in the city of Jerusalem. But then God raises them back from the dead again. And they are victorious. What on earth does it mean? What on earth does it mean? Well, let me give you a glimmer. Let me give you a glimmer. There is a long and consistent strand in Christian thinking that says this will happen at some point. That at some point, there will be two people in Jerusalem who will actually be the witnesses for Jesus. They will actually be martyred in Jerusalem and they'll be raised from the dead. Just like Jesus was martyred and raised from the dead, so these two people will be at some point. And that is possibly the case. Jerusalem still erupts today in massive violence. Uh, I had the privilege of being out there earlier this year. It was calm when we were there, but it erupted in strong violence uh, a week or so after we came back. But in the way of John, in the way of John, I think it's not so much that he's writing history in advance as he's describing patterns. And this is a pattern of what it means to be a Christian, the church. In a way, these two witnesses are you and me, Christians throughout history. We are to be the brave messengers of Jesus, the ones who eat that scroll. If you read on, you'll find that uh, these two witnesses, they're compared to um, olive trees or lampstands. There's something about they're filled with the Holy Spirit as they do this. That's a Bible picture, isn't it? They are brave witnesses to Jesus, filled with the Spirit. And yet, they die. They're martyrs. Christian, are you willing to be that brave? Are you willing in our day to be that bold? Because the necessary second truth is the high price that it takes. Now, you might think that we here in our privileged bit of the West, we will not have to pay the highest price for our Christian beliefs. But you will know that there are Christians around the world who do. There'll be Christians who wake up tomorrow morning who won't go to sleep in their beds tomorrow night because they will at least have been arrested and quite possibly have been killed. They are the brave witnesses. And the challenge for us is, would we be willing to be that brave and that bold? Will we speak like these witnesses, even though we don't have to face that ultimate price? Will we take that opportunity? Friends, the picture here is of a world which is hostile to God, which refuses to return to him. 
And God says, he announces through these trumpets that he will judge. But he's restraining the final day, the final judgment. Why? Because the Christians are to be the brave bearers of the message of forgiveness and return. If you haven't accepted that, if you haven't yourself said, I do want Jesus to be the lamb who died for me, my lamb on the throne, my king, my savior, my friend. Can I urge you to do exactly that? Because I might be wrong on the timings. I might well be wrong on the timings. And even if I'm not, God is giving clear warnings in our day about his message of judgment. And if you have said that, if you have said, yes, I want the Lord Jesus to be my savior and my friend, then realize that you can't keep that to yourself. You are to be one of these brave witnesses, telling out to a watching world that may have no interest at all and refuses to listen, that says to our watching world, you too can turn around, come home, and know forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are rich and undeniably difficult passages to grapple with. We know that they are good for us and that it's good for us to wrestle with them and try to understand them. And we thank you for what we have learnt. That your wrath against human sin erupts in judgment. It does so throughout history and it will finally on Judgment Day. And we know too that human sin against you erupts in a refusal to stop sinning and rebelling. We know that therefore we as your people, as those who have been forgiven, are to be brave, spirit-filled witnesses for you to speak for you, whatever the cost. So please would you help us to be brave and bold in our day. Amen.